You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Gary, you just mentioned about markets and how eventually markets will unfold or reveal what's actually happening on in terms of the world economy. You also mentioned the involvement of bureaucrats. Um, I heard you mention many times previously about oligarchs, plutocrats, and technocrats. Can you first off describe what these entities are and what their role in or, and involvement are in terms of the world economy, geopolitics uh, for the audience? Well, I, I've written quite a bit about wealth inequality, and it's starting to get a lot of attention in the broader media. And especially in the last few years, uh, the gap between the, the ultra-rich, which I would say is the richest uh, one-tenth of one percent of the world's population, uh, the wealth of the world's wealthiest one-tenth of one percent is about has as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the world population. That is an extreme inequality. And um, we have to keep in mind, even in today's world of the Internet and bloggersphere and podcasts, such as we're doing today, and even my newsletter, uh, I think that we have the ability to um, communicate uh, in various ways individually on our own, and we have still today uh, a relatively free Internet world marketplace. Um, uh, we also also keep in mind that the major media broadcasting corporations are controlled by corporations who are part of that one-tenth of one percent, the owners of these corporations, and the folks that work with them on the board of directors are basically letting uh, the population uh, know what it is they want them to know. Uh, A lot of people may be very frustrated when they turn on the television and all they hear is relative nonsense uh, about things that don't matter in anyone's lives and perhaps the market is a way, uh, the the news uh, media is a way to get away from, to get into an alternative universe so someone has a diversion from their regular life spot uh, style. But the point I'm trying to make is even the news and information that we're uh, allowed to believe and think is coming from uh, corporations. And uh, these corporations have become massively powerful. There's six uh, corporations in the United States that control the vast amount of news and information that the U.S. population hears and others around the world as well. That's just too much of a concentration of power in too few hands. And so you have in the United States, what's developed now is an oligarchic economy where 500 corporations control over half the economy and reap half the profits of all the companies in the United States. And as a result of that tremendous power in too few hands, they also have tremendous power and influence over politicians who make the the laws. Uh, And therefore, uh, we never play on a level playing field 
and that the wealthier just keep getting wealthier because they have the ability to buy out and influence uh, politicians. And so as a result, uh, the average guy does believe that everything is kind of skewed against him. And um, the wealth inequality just keeps keeps getting wider and wider. Uh, as it turns out, the ultra wealthy apparently have most of most of their money uh, in the stock market. That's their piggy bank. Uh, they also do hold quite a bit in in bonds, which um, are more of a um, of a safety play. These are high grade, so called high grade bonds, not the junk bonds we talked about earlier. And the policies that are pursued by the central banks in the United States and Europe and Japan are all geared towards boosting the prices of stocks and bonds. And uh, the vast majority of financial assets are controlled by just 10% of the populations. And so um, 90% of the populations are not benefiting from this um, upward movement in, in financial markets, so only 10% are. And those who are profiting um, are spending some of their money, but a lot of it's being hoarded or reinvested. And so there's a very little trickle down to the, to the general economy, which explains how we've seen booming stock markets and booming bond markets and stagnant economies uh, at the same time. There is... There is no trickle down, or very little trickle down effect uh, from the ultra wealthy to the to the rest of the uh, population, and as a result, uh, you have what we call I call an oligarchic economy, and it's becoming less known as crony capitalism, where the oligarchs uh, can buy out the politicians and have rules made in their favor, and this is not just in the United States, but it's that's the same elsewhere. There's a lot of corruption just about in most countries nowadays. Um, and so, anyhow, um, it's, 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 uh, it is good to kind of at least realize that if we are talking about markets as we are today, uh, the fact of the matter is uh, only 10% of the population really has any skin in the game. <laughs> The rest can only watch from the sidelines and wonder, you know, whether it's just some type of virtual TV game show. Or, but very few are actually involved in the market. Um, but nonetheless, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting story. Gary, regarding some of these ideas. Uh, we talk about the opportunities that exist within the stock markets, um, within the oil industry, and iron ore. Can any individual, part of the 90%, not equally be able to open a brokerage account and benefit from all these trends that are happening? Is the idea of having like oligarchs, the 1% or the ultra-wealthy, more of more of an artificial glass ceiling that anyone at this day and age still has the ability to participate in markets to capture the same uh, opportunities that exist for the ultra-wealthy? Is is it more of a oh. um, awareness? And I think that's one of the key purposes of the, a show like this that gives people the opportunity. If we're talking about excessive QE, um, someone that can be very pragmatic about this and can sit here maybe on the other side of the world or a developing country could actually still capture this opportunity. That's absolutely uh, correct. I work for a brokerage firm 
that was the lar- lar- is the largest uh, brokerage firm in the United States uh, on retail level, and uh, had several million dollars, several million households that had accounts. Um, several million households in the United States is also a very uh, small percentage of uh, the amount of households uh, that are out there. The vast majority of people's wealth is in real estate. And I guess that will continue to be the same. Um, for those who do want to try to uh, take advantage uh, of government policies which are skewed towards the rich, all you really have to do is invest as if you were ultra-wealthy and invest in the same markets as they do. And uh, certainly the easiest way to do so is to open up a brokerage account and invest in maybe an index fund type of uh, investment. Uh, And the stock market here in the United States has proven itself to be the long-term wealth generator. And I've been watching markets now for over 30 years, and I've seen dozens of crises that have uh, triggered massive meltdowns in the stock market from time to time. Um, and I've seen them all uh, since Volcker's Day, and I've written about them and traded in them. And I would say it, I see at the end of the day, as of just last week, uh, when the stock market was hitting all-time record highs, it's managed to overcome all those crises and managed to uh, uh, to go higher yet and hit record highs. The um, In order to be successful in the stock market, which is your best bet, for the longer term, you have to make a 20-year commitment that if you buy a fund today, you're going to hold it for 20 years. And within that 20-year period, you could you could very well find yourself down 10 or 15 percent, or even more than a given point in time. If you hold on to it for 20 years, you will end up uh, being a winner. That's been just based on past raw data. Best uh, trends in the marketplace. Uh, even in weak economic times, uh, the market can still go up because you're buying uh, you're buying oligarchs. You're buying the mansions that have all the rules skewed in their favor, and not only tax laws, but also uh, international reach where they are investing uh, around the world and have figured out every way to avoid paying taxes uh, and whatever monies they are generating for profits are being rechanneled to shareholders in the form of dividends and share buybacks and it's actually a shrinking market in the United States where corporations have reduced the amount of shares outstanding by 10% due to their buyback activity so um, that would be you know that would be my advice. Uh, now, not all not all stock markets around the world have done that well as the United States. So Japan, in particular, has been in a bear market for over 20 years, and is back to where it was 20 uh, some odd years ago. And China has had its boom and bust uh, cycles. It's uh, gone through a bust, and now it's starting another boom, reminiscent of what we saw in 2006 and 2007. So. Uh, if you're going to go international, you have to also look at the long-term trends of every individual country and 
not, a, not every government has the stock market as its number one uh, focus of attention. Here in the United States, the, the U.S. stock market is uh, the primary uh, is, is the primary goal of the Federal Reserve to, to keep it propped up. Um, in other countries, such as in China, the value in the stock market is not that important um, as far as the government officials are concerned. So, Gary, so, um, let, let's talk about the U.S. dollar and the S&P 500 in this case. We've talked about the role of oligarchs, uh, central banking, and their policies that that benefit oligarchs. Um, in terms of starting up a new portfolio right now, what can we do in terms of the, a position, say, for example, in the S&P 500? Do we see the markets continuing to benefit from relatively loose monetary policy? And do we see the U.S. dollar as the best currency in a very bad neighborhood? Well, the U.S. dollar is the least ugly of the currencies. I would say the currency markets is what a reverse beauty contest. It's choosing the least ugly currency at the time. And we are in a situation now where the United States dollar is going up not because of any. Well, I guess part of the reason is is the United States has now earned a reputation of being a, a petrocurrency. Uh, given its um, uh, status as a, uh, one of the world's largest energy producers, which is helping to um, reduce imports of oil and therefore improving our trade balance. But um, the uh, Federal Reserve has uh, stopped its uh, quantitative easing policy, uh, whereas last year the Federal Reserve printed one and a half trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, since November 1st of this year, in the last uh, six or seven weeks, the Fed has uh, shut down its QE operations. And at the same time, the Bank of Japan is saying that they are going to uh, pick up the mantle from the Fed and continue on with their QE operations and not only uh, continue, but to continue longer and even more extensive operation than had been previously assumed. So on October 31st, just as the Fed finished the last day of its QE money printing, the Bank of Japan announced that they would increase their QE money printing by 20% and most likely continue it beyond March 31st of 2015, which was their previous date that they would uh, halt they had announced back a few years ago they would run it through March of 2015. Now they're going to extend that for at least another six months. And as a result of that, you know, simple logic would say if the Fed has stopped printing money and Japan is going to increase its money printing, then the yen will go down against the dollar. And sure enough, the dollar went from about 108 yen to about 119 yen. And so that trend will probably continue for a few more months at least as Japan naturally prints money and the Fed stays out of the money printing business. And Europe is going to begin its own QE operations. Uh, Europe has been trying to print euros and has basically been confining its activities uh, to smaller credit markets in Europe. Uh, but if it really wants to get 
the impact that it's looking for. It's going to have to go to the broader, deeper uh, government markets, which it's prepared to do. And it's already announced that it's going to print about a trillion euros next year. Um, so that should weaken the euro. Uh, the euro is just under a dollar twenty-five, and uh, that would probably drop under a dollar twenty as a result of uh, the ECB's money printing. And I, I predict the dollar uh, will uh, eventually hit one hundred and twenty-five yen, or even possibly higher. So the dollar will rise against um, the yen and the euro. As a result, uh, the Swiss franc, which is tied into the euro because of the Swiss National Bank's monetary policy, will fall in line with the euro, and the British pound will fall in line with the euro. So there's uh, four currencies all heading south, and then we have a whole bunch of other currencies which are commodity-related such as the Australian dollar, which is tied in with iron ore, and coking coal, that's top two exports, that is going down with the metals markets. And then we have other currencies like the Mexican peso and the Canadian dollar and the Russian ruble tied in with oil, and they're falling as well. And then the Brazilian real, which is also a commodity-based currency, also falling. Uh, to to multi-year lows and the Chilean peso tied into copper is also at a multi-year low as the price of copper has uh, dropped uh, below three dollars a pound. So the U.S. dollar rising against all currencies and that should continue. And of course, if the Federal Reserve actually decides it wants to start raising interest rates uh, next year, even by a small amount, by a half or one percent. That could have a dramatic impact on the currency markets and push the dollar even higher. And the negative feedback loop, uh, which you'd also see in the newsletter with charts and graphs, uh, guess what? A stronger dollar has a negative influence on commodity prices, including crude oil. So a stronger dollar could just reinforce uh, the, uh, the drop in oil and help uh, the Saudis keep the price down. So whereas the Saudis are doing their part in oversupplying the market, in order to keep it down, keep the price of oil down for an extended period of time in order to cripple the Iranian and Russian economies, uh, the Fed could decide to raise short-term interest rates to use the dollar, stronger dollar as an additional weapon uh, to make that price of oil stay low. Of course, um, the risk for the United States in doing so is that you may have the shale oil industry going bankrupt or a lot of these smaller companies defaulting on their debts. But guess what? The major oligarchs like uh, ExxonMobil and Chevron will gladly pick up these companies at 10 or 15 cents on the dollar and then take over that industry as well. Yes. Uh, so they had missed um, the that, could be the, that could be the end result. <laughs> Right. They so, missed uh, out buying all these shale um, properties the the previous few years, and this is a great opportunity for them to acquire some of them at these discounted prices. And so uh, investors should be doing the same, and so those may be good some companies with long-term investments if the um, major oligarchs in the uh, energy uh, sector do fall in price uh, in the short term. Um then 
as they acquire these properties, uh, they will emerge as the big winners, as, as, as usual, and overcome their short-term adversity. And, um, and eventually, the price of oil as well will, will not stay between 40 and 50 for a long period of time. I find that hard to believe. I do think this is more of a short-term nature, as we've already described. And if uh, betting, betting not five years out, uh, you can look at, actually, there are longer-term contracts out there, which are interesting to watch. Um, the uh, December 2018 oil contract uh, trading today on Friday, uh, closing at $68.63. That's about $11 a barrel higher than the spot market. But that's telling us even four years away from today, the price of oil will still be under $70 a barrel. So that, that's still a, a new reality that's kind of hard to believe, uh, being where we've been for the last three and a half years. Um, and I guarantee most people who go to the uh, petrol, pet- petrol station, the uh, gas station, and to fill up, don't know why the price of gasoline's going down. They they just see the price going down. Um if you read the newsletter or keep your eye on the markets, of course, you'll probably be in the 10% that are in the know. So, Gary, what, what about the S&P 500 or U.S. equities in general? If interest rates starts to hike, how much period of time do investors still have to, to capture these new highs in the market? Well, this will be one of the more fascinating uh situations going forward into 2015 is what the Federal Reserve will do with interest rates. And one could argue that with this collapse in oil prices and with the the meltdown in the energy uh, junk bond market and with with the strong dollar right now, that inflation will not be a problem uh, in 2015. And There'll be plenty of Federal Reserve officials who are basically political cronies who have been selected by the White House because of their dovish backgrounds. Uh, They'll be arguing uh, against raising interest rates uh, in such an environment, no need to do so. And so, um, on the other hand, I I do listen carefully to what the top Federal Reserve officials are saying. They usually do broadcast telegraphs to the public at large what they're thinking uh, through the media. And they use their jawboning to move markets. It's a powerful tool. Just, just words alone can move markets, as we saw in October. Uh, and so uh, some of the more powerful members of the Federal Reserve are now preparing markets for, for a small increase in interest rates. And if my theory is correct, that um, they may want to strengthen the dollar even a little bit further in order to help anchor oil prices lower, in order to topple Iran and Russia, if that is the game plan. But all that's really necessary to achieve that objective is a small increase in interest rates uh, to maybe 1% on the federal funds rate. From a quarter percent today up to 1%, should be more than enough to achieve that objective and push the dollar higher against all currencies. Uh, and would a increase of a three quarters of a percent be enough to uh, topple the U.S. economy and push it into a recession? 
and thereby uh, lead to a sharp decline in the stock market. Uh, it, one would have to argue, if you look at a 50 or 60 year chart of the Fed funds rate, uh, it's highly normal to have interest rates near 0% for six straight years. Uh, we can afford to go up to 1% without hurting uh, the U.S. economy all that much. Um, once again, though, keep in mind that uh, what we just saw in the oil market, a lot of people thought the new normal was $100 a barrel that would last forever, and they made a, a $250 billion bets in the junk bond market. And even more than that, uh, when you include bank loans, um, which are also several tens of billions uh, that are not actively traded on markets, so those people were all fooled. They got the they got the rug pulled from under their feet, and it's possible that there is a lot of betting that's been going on in the stock markets, based on the idea that interest rates would stay near zero percent for a long period of time. There could be a lot of leveraged positions in the market that had been bought with borrowed money, and even a, an increase of interest rates uh, to one percent or one and a quarter might be enough to scare a lot of people out of their positions in the stock market. And so, yes, it could actually cause a 10%, the long-awaited 10% uh, correction at some point uh, next year. Now, that would not uh, be the end of the long-term bull market, which is going to be six years old in March. You can have a 10% correction along the way. In fact, uh, it's a very normal thing. Uh, We have 10% corrections on average once every 18 months. Uh, we almost had the 10% correction in October. We just fell short of it. Uh, so now we have not had a correction in the U.S. stock market for almost 40 months now. And once again, they normally occur once every 18 months. So we are overdue in that respect um, on a historical basis. So my guess is sometime in 2015, uh, the Fed will try to raise the short-term interest rates a little bit and that could be enough to trigger a 10% correction in the stock market. Ironically, the bond market um, kind of likes the idea of a, of a higher short-term interest rate. The longer-term bond market kind of likes the idea that if the Fed will raise the short-term interest rate uh, to 1%, that it could trigger a 10% correction in the stock market, and that money from the stock market will have no place to go but to run for safety into high-grade uh, high bonds, uh, I believe. Um, so uh, it's kind of, that would be another surprising event. But there's not much money to be made in bonds, of course, uh, at these levels. Um, the best you could hope to do is uh, keep your money um, steady or earn a, a, tiny, a tiny interest rate, given where they are now. Probably the best... Uh, area for an investor, if they are in fixed income, uh, would be to go into high-grade corporate bonds where you can get a little over 4% uh, on a 15-year note. That doesn't sound very great you know, from a historical level, but um, I'm looking at the interest rates today in Switzerland. A uh, 10-year Swiss government is 27 basis points, almost a quarter percent for a 10-year Swiss bond. And in uh, Germany, uh, the 10-year yield is 62 basis points. Uh, And in France, uh, 90 basis points. So 
you're getting less than 1% in Europe. Um, so if you got 4% or higher on a high-grade corporate bond, a high-grade oligarch, um, then you know, you'd be doing pretty good. And if the world economy does go into a, a long-term slowdown, um, then you know bonds would at least be a good place to hang out for a year or two. And then, of course, we always need to reassess uh, market conditions uh, along the way because uh, there's always something going on that nobody, nobody thought about a year earlier. That's interesting. One of the bigger positions we have is actually in dim sum bonds, Gary, which gives you the oligarch exposure with an internationalizing currency that might actually have a few stumbling blocks along the way, but um, probably still on the same lines of what you're discussing about to some extent. Um, well, thank you very much, Gary, for all of this. Um, it's been very insightful. Maybe we should cap off this uh, discussion by just asking you like a very general question, which is in all your years of covering markets, what are some like, what is some insight that you've learned towards trading and investing? So far, we've talked about a lot of your observations, but how can we implement some of this stuff uh, for the listening audience? Um, well, you know, there's commodities which um, uh, have are, are, are going cycles, and in fact, I would say uh, commodities, industrial commodities, are still, at least to this day, uh, uh, give us better indications of what's going on in the global economy. Uh, then say stock markets. Um, stock markets have become divorced from the global economy. Uh, co- major companies can make more, e- even bigger profits in, in bad or good economic times. And quite often, the inflation that's caused by central banks is directed to pumping up financial markets. Um, but commodities are more indicative of what's going on in the real economy. And so I would I would say that is something that we should all kind of keep in mind. The other thing was that for many years, the major U.S. investment banking firms were allowed to actively trade in the commodity markets. And as a result, they were able to convince a lot of pension funds and other mutual funds and big investors to look at the commodity markets as an asset class in itself created a lot of ETFs in that area and helped to lead to what is known as the commodity super cycle that we saw last decade. Um, But they have since been um, locked out or being forced out of the commodity markets through legislation. And with their absence, we're not seeing the volatility or the the booms, uh, the boom cycles uh, that we saw last 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 decade. Uh, and so for that reason, uh, commodities have been weaker than maybe had expected. And so look to the industrial commodities for trends of the global economy and even inflation. I, I personally use a, the, the basket of commodities, the continuous commodity index. I, I use the year-over-year change as my as my inflation indicator, I understand that commodities are just a segment of what people buy, uh, but they still give us good 
leading indicating signals of where inflation's going. Uh, right now, the commodity cycle is um, commodity index is about nine percent lower today than it was a year ago. Uh, so that tells me that we are in deflation, and um, central banks are trying to uh, offset this deflation by printing even more money. But that printing money is not going into commodities; it's going into financial assets. So it makes it a very difficult uh, chore to try to figure out uh, with these conflicting uh, forces. I would say, though, as I mentioned earlier, in the 35 years that I've been in the markets. And I've done a study going back 50 years, um, studying all the crises and the, and the meltdowns, which people often worry about uh, more than anything else, that even if you end up buying the market at a very high, at the very high of a move, um, if you hold on to it long enough, and I'm talking about an index, not in an individual stock, but an index and in the United States, uh, the Federal Reserve will bail you out over the long term and see to it that uh, that that index goes up eventually and that you'll uh, come out ahead. That's been the conventional logic. That's called the uh, Yellen put, the Bernanke put, or the Greenspan put, where the government now is almost guaranteeing that uh, if you invest in the market and you hold on to it long enough, you'll, you'll earn a profit. Um, it's that thinking that I find also, you know, perhaps kind of dangerous. So, but that's it has worked out that way. I have to admit, and that's all I'm basically uh, saying is that's how the market does behave. Uh, I would advise, though, of course, never to put all your eggs in one basket. Keep them uh, spread out into different areas, including uh, real estate and uh, currencies. It also, can be uh, used as an investment vehicle. And we are limited to what we can invest our money in, stocks, bonds, real estate, precious metals, currencies, um, or certain commodities that may do well. Or you could have made a fortune shorting the oil market if you were wise enough to see this event occurring. This was a a heck of a move on the downside. So there's always opportunities um, uh, along the way, but it is tough, and it's getting tougher, and Increasingly, we're seeing now that uh, more and more of the market movements are being directed by computerized algorithms, uh, which is beyond the scope of human recognition and understanding, and where they integrate a lot of fundamentals and information and make buy and sell uh, decisions faster than you you can can read an article. So... um, one has to almost take a long-term view of something and hope things work out. Um, you might want to just wait for corrections if that's uh, if that would if that's what would make you more comfortable. And when you do see one, uh, figuring you can buy an index fund, and even if you're going to not necessarily catch the bottom, uh, that eventually it will reverse and go back up. And that whole theory is based on the idea that the government will continually devalue the dollar. It'll continually print money uh, to monetize the debts. And the money printing um, is what makes the stock market goes up over the longer term. Um, and the question is, what is your best investment vehicle for, for overcoming money printing by central banks? And from what I've seen here and now... 
it's been it's been the stock market. Thank you, Gary, for all that um, insight. Uh, hopefully, we can have a conversation sometime along the line and see how all these uh, commodities and and markets have unfolded, and maybe we can get more thoughts and opinions from you in the upcoming uh, interview. Okay, very good, Peter. I certainly uh, look forward to that. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.